Zephaniah is four or five back from your start of your Matthew, depending on how you count. So if you go to Matthew, if you're having trouble finding Zephaniah in your Bible, you can go to Matthew and go backwards, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah. Make sure I got that right. Malachi, Zechariah, I think Haggai is in there, it's really small. Haggai and Zephaniah, chapter 1. It is whatever page in your pew Bible, it's in there somewhere. Page 937. A couple of resources I want to point out to you. Uh, I'm going to reference one of them this morning, but on our book table, we've got a book table. The books are free to you. Um, uh, At one point in my life, I went to a church down in Florida on vacation, and they happened to have free books out, and I grabbed Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper, and the book totally uh, revolutionized, changed Darla and I's view of Scripture and what was going on in the world and all these things, and so I have a conviction that I want to make sure we've got good resources Free of charge. You, someone left me some money for it. That was fine if you want to do that. If you don't want to take a free book, you can leave money if you want to. But please don't let that be a hindrance to you. Uh, if you see a book out there you're interested in, please take it and read it. But two of them I want to just kind of emphasize this morning is The Knowing God by J.I. Packer. There's only one copy out there of it right now. We can get more or you can find it yourself. Knowing God by J.I. Packer and also The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, and there's two copies of that out there. So if you're interested in kind of where we're coming from when looking at this Bible, at this passage, this book, those two books have some great information in them. So we are in Zephaniah this morning, Um, a minor prophet. We will read the text, and then we will get into it. So we're going to read the whole first chapter here. We only have three Sundays to get through this, so we're going to read a chapter at a time. So, Zephaniah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away Everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, 
a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Zephaniah chapter 1. We're going to have a good time this morning. That's a nice, heavy passage, huh? So, my, when I decided to go through Zephaniah, I happened to be attending uh, one of the progressive couples' Sunday school class, and their curriculum uh, from their standard, weekly standard uh, Sunday school material, which is great, by the way. If you don't grab the lookout that's on the table out here, you're missing out. It's a shame that Dawn ever has to throw away copies of that lookout. It's a good, it's a good magazine, a good periodical New every week's got good articles in it. But anyway, they were going through Zephaniah and they kind of made some made the comment, how come no one preaches through Zephaniah anymore? How come we don't talk about Zephaniah anymore? And I thought, I can fix that. <laughs> All right. We don't talk about Zephaniah. All right. I, I think I can do that. Let's let's take some time and look through Zephaniah. It's a legitimate question and kind of makes maybe decide, you know, let's look through Zephaniah. But, as you can tell from the first chapter, we're not taking on Zephaniah because it's an easy book. Like, I, I want to break off from Luke until we get to chapter 2 at Christmas Day. So i got to fill the time with something. So let's just kind of, I don't know, let's pick a minor prophet and just mess around. This isn't an easy book. We're not picking Zephaniah because it's an easy book. You're likely to get one of two reactions from the book of Zephaniah. You're, the first reaction you might get is it's going to kind of upset your tummy. You're going to get a little nauseated by the language that is used here of the severity and the wrath of God. Zephaniah can leave you a little upset. That's one possible reaction. The second possible reaction to Zephaniah is that it totally rips your guts out. (laughs) Is that you read it, and if you aren't just casually listening, if you're really looking into Zephaniah, you don't just leave with your tummy kind of tumbling or rumbling and messed up. You end up laid bare. If you're really listening to Zephaniah, he's going to open us up to who God really is, and it will lay us out. 
this is not a safe book. This is not a safe book. This is not Zephaniah. You know, you go to kids' books, uh, you buy a children's Bible. Zephaniah, a lot of times, isn't in your children's Bible. <laughs> Believe it or not, they skip. There's no, there's no cute cartoon drawings to make of the book of Zephaniah until we get to chapter 3, which we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But um, this isn't a safe book. But listen, you know what else isn't safe? Modern medicine isn't safe. You know, when, when, you, when you have an illness and they lay you down on a table and they take these huge crude, crude instruments and they cut you in half and start cutting, pulling things out, can I just say, that's not safe. I mean, you know, does it... There's a reason why we don't go back in the kitchen and start doing this to each other. It's not safe. If you want safe, you go to an herbalist or you go get some essential oils or something like that. Those are safe. You know, put some stuff in a diffuser. That's safe. But if you want to get well, you got to do some kind of unsafe things. You got to go into a surgeon and he's going to cut you open and, and take care of some stuff because you want to get well. You don't go to these things because they're safe. You go to them because they're medicine and you want to get well. Zephaniah is not a safe book, but if we want to be well, if we want, to, if we want our view of God to be accurate and right, we've got to do some maybe unsafe things, which is subject ourselves to what is this book really telling us about who God is. Leaning up to this, I was worried. I, I didn't want to depart from the book of Luke. We, we were having a good time in it, and I just... It was really kind of going well. I, I hated to stop the flow. I felt like this was going to be this big departure from, we're talking about the song of Mary, right? And the song of, of Zechariah in the, in the temple and all of these visions of God that they were having causing them to rejoice in their God no matter what happened in their lives. And I thought, I hate to depart from that and go to Zephaniah. But I realized this book fits right into our study in Luke chapter 1. When you read them together, a really interesting thing happens. You realize that the God of Zephaniah is the same God that Mary sings of. The God of Zephaniah is the God Zechariah sings about. And my whole point through Luke is that if you want to be able to sing these songs like they do, what you need more than anything is a clear and right view of who this God is, so that you can rejoice in Him no matter what comes along. This is why Zephaniah and other minor prophets are such important books. They show us the truth about God. They show us who God really is. It's in seeing Him and seeing God for who He is, and ultimately all He has done for us in Christ, our joy increases all the more that we see him. That being said, the unfamiliarity that exists in the book of Zephaniah um, is not because this book's hard to understand. Like a lot of times, you know, you, you haven't spent much time reading it. Well, didn't even know Zephaniah was maybe in your Bible. It's, yeah, that's not a fancy, that's not a trick Bible in your pew. That's just a regular one. Zephaniah's in there. And the reason, but the reason why we don't talk about Zephaniah a lot it's not because it's hard to understand. Like, you know, you might, those minor prophets, you know, those guys, they used funny word pictures and lots of illusions, and the context is hard to understand, so you can't really get what they're talking about. You know, the reason why we don't read Zephaniah is, uh, he's just kind of hard to understand. The reason why you don't see, everyone, not everyone's going, doing series through the book of Zephaniah is not because 
this text is hard to understand. I would argue the reason why we don't spend a lot of time in Zephaniah is because it's too easy to understand and we don't really like what it says. It's too easy to understand and we don't really like what it says. It's like Joel, and um, I'll pick on my boy a little bit. Yeah, you. So, uh, <laughs> don't embarrass him. <laughs> uh, you know, when it comes to putting up, he's a, he's a master at puzzles. We've been doing puzzles forever. We've got a giant bookshelf full of puzzles. He can go in there, and he can pull out every puzzle that's in that bookcase, figure out how to get them out, get them open, pull them out, put them all together. He can do it no problem. And then bedtime comes around, and he says, oh, and you say, it's time to put this puzzle up and put it back in the bookcase. And you know what he says? I don't know how. I, I need help. I, I, how does this even work? I don't, I, puzzle, where do these go? I don't know. Does he not know? He knows. He doesn't like the idea of putting puzzles up. And I think that that's a lot. We, though we are older, we haven't changed much when it comes to things like Zephaniah. We read this and we think, Gosh, I don't, even, I, don't, I don't even understand what this is talking about. No, we do. The, the reason why this book is avoided is because it's really clear what this book is saying. And we don't like what it says. And so we're going to, instead of just facing the facts, we're going to maybe say, I don't even know how this book fits together. There are certain allusions and historical contexts that are difficult to work through But the main gist of this letter, of this prophecy, is very plain. And instead of just admitting it it, and admitting that we don't like it, we plead ignorance. Well, today we're putting that aside and we're looking at what is Zephaniah about. The big glaring reality that slams into us from the book of Zephaniah and the other minor prophets, simply this. God hates sin. And will punish sinners. God hates sin. I hope your pew is comfortable. Because from here on out. That's going to be the only thing that's comfortable in this room. Is your pew. God. I mean. Do we like that message? It's uncomfortable. And so it's easy to plead. "Eh, I'm not sure I get what this book is. You know. I've read commentaries. I got a stack of them in my office. Read through them on Zephaniah. And there's lots to study. But at the end of the day. The message is plain. God hates sin and God will punish sinners. It's convenient to try to it's convenient to pretend that we just don't get it. The wrath of God comes blazing towards us in this divinely inspired message. There are many attributes of God today that our culture approves of. God's love, and we thank God's justice unless his justice involves his wrath. God's kindness, God's mercy. There are many attributes of God that our culture affirms today, but the wrath of God is not one of them. We like to shy away from this one. But I'll quote J.I. Packer from this book, Knowing God, saying this. says, No doubt it is true that the subject of divine wrath has in past been handled speculatively, irreverently, even malevolently. No doubt there have been some who have preached of wrath and damnation with tearless eyes and no pain in their hearts. No doubt the sight of small sects cheerfully consigning the whole world, apart from themselves, to hell has disgusted many. Yet, if we would know God, if we would know God, it is vital that we face the truth 
concerning His wrath, however unfashionable it may be, and however strong our initial prejudices against it. Otherwise, we shall not understand the gospel of salvation from wrath, nor the propitiatory achievement of the cross, nor the wonder of the redeeming love of God. Nor shall we understand the hand of God in history and God's presence dealing with His own people, nor shall we be able to make head or tail of the book of Revelation. Nor will our evangelism have the urgency enjoined by Jude, save some by snatching them out of the fire. That's on page 156 of Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The, uh, the uh, progressive couples class is studying the book of Revelation, the day of the Lord, the apocalypse, the coming judgment. We'll get to there next week. But if we don't understand Zephaniah, if we ignore this attribute of God and His wrath, we have no way to make sense of the book of Revelation. We have no way to make sense of the gospel of salvation from this wrath. So therefore, we must dive into this book. One of the reasons why the gospel is not the joy that it should be in the hearts of our churches today is because there's no concept of what this gospel and what this salvation is from. It's more an affirmation of, you you know, you're wonderful and God loves you too. Well, great. He can join the party of everyone who loves me. That's, That's what the gospel becomes in our modern churches. God is more like the neighborly psychiatrist who, ready to hear all of your problems and essentially affirm you in them. They're just there, the psychiatrist, and God's just there to make sure we feel happy about ourselves no matter what. We get obsessed with longing for a God who will make us happy. Happy, and it's tragic. We want to be a people, I want us to be a people, that throw the doors wide open in our desires to be not just happy about God, but infinitely satisfied in all that He is for us in rescuing us from the terrible wrath that He has against sin and the punishment that is coming towards sinners. Introduction completed. Zephaniah chapter 1. So a little bit of the context of the book, we don't have time to spend a lot on it because we could, we could do a bunch of details, but really you can read this and get what it's saying. But Zephaniah, he prophesies here, he tells us in verse 1, during the reign of Josiah, the, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So this is back in, you can look this up and read about this period of time from in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23, also in 2 Chronicles chapters 34 and 35. Zephaniah is the last of the pre-exilic prophets. Okay, and you're like, what in the world is he even talking about? Zephaniah is the last of the pre-exilic prophets. So we have these minor prophets, and Zephaniah is kind of the culmination of the, of the last of the prophets, a contemporary of Jeremiah, before the tribe of Judah comes under Babylonian captivity and is taken off to exile. Pre-exilic. This is before this exile. Some of you are still confused. What's Darren talking about? So we have Clurback after Solomon. This is a little bit of Israel history, real fast. Solomon, we have the first King Saul, the King David comes in, his son Solomon. After Solomon, Rehoboam and Jeroboam is split the kingdom of God into two different camps. Ten tribes of Israel in the north, two kingdoms of Judah in the south. There's prophets for Israel, there's prophets for Judah. And Israel 
goes first unto Assyria, and they go into Assyrian captivity. So at this point, at the point of Zephaniah, Israel has been wiped away. All that is left of God's people is these two tribes of Judah down in the south. And this is who Zephaniah is prophesying to. And he's warning them, under the rule of Josiah, God's anger is against them. Josiah is an interesting king. He's a good king in Israel. He starts doing reforms, begins to uh, fix the temple, and discovers in the temple the book of the law. He finds the Bible in the temple and begins to have the Bible read again over the people of God. And you can find, you can see the similarities between the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Zephaniah. This is the time that Zephaniah is prophesying. No doubt Zephaniah plays some part in Josiah's reforms. There's some context for you. That may have been all Greek to you, and that's, that's fine, but that's just that's what we're kind of coming at in this time period. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. The big glaring reality that comes from the book still is this. God hates sin, and he will punish sinners. Sin, we, since this is the reality, we should look and take a few minutes at looking at specifically what are these sins that they are specifically doing that God is bringing his condemnation towards. Sin is simply this. It is any transgression against the will of God. It is any transgression against the command of God. A transgression either in commission or a transgression in omission. So it can be something you do that God has said not to do or something that you fail to do and God has told you to do it. So in regards to your neighbor, it could be, you know, you should be loving towards your neighbor. And so you commit sin against God by harming your neighbor or that's the sin of commission or you see your neighbor in need and you decide, I don't want to help them. That's a sin of omission. You have not done what you should have done. These is the categories of sin, transgression against God's righteous law. But these people specifically got a long list. We don't have time to go through all of them. They got a long list of things that they are sinning against God over. So verse 17, just clearly, so, we, so we're not confused about this. God gives us his because statement. He says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because for this purpose because they have sinned against the Lord. They have sinned against the Lord. Specifically, we can go through the line here. Verse 4, they're idolatrous. The name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. They are star worshipers, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. They're dealing in astrology and, and kind of the, the study of the fates. They're, the, they're into star worship. They swear by, to the Lord, and yet they swear by Milcom. There's some syncretism going on. They have turned back from following the Lord. They do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. They're denying that God even is. They've turned back from following Him. In verse 8, it's kind of an interesting term they use here, or Zephaniah uses, God uses through Zephaniah. I will punish the officials and the king's son, and all who array themselves in foreign attire. They're clothing themselves with the clothes of their culture. They are culture consumed. They leap over the threshold, which is a superstitious act 
from the temple of Dagon. You wouldn't have known that, but they're, they're operating off of superstition. They're complacent in verse 12. The men who are complacent, they are agnostic. They say in their hearts, God won't do good, God won't do ill. If, if God even is out there, he doesn't get involved. He does neither good nor ill. And they trust in their prosperity. Verse 18 Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. They got quite a decent list going on there. And we're going to take a few minutes and we'll do more next week just looking at what these sins are because there might be some rebuke in there for us as well. They are idolaters. Idolatry is worship of anything besides God or valuing anything more than God. The Israelites had Baal worship going on in their neighborhoods. And instead of rejecting that kind of worship, because it was in contrast to the worship of God, they join into it. They see what their neighbors are worshiping and they join into their neighbors' pursuits. Not only is idolatry worship of anything besides God, it is also valuing anything more than God. Not every idol is a bad thing. So when we get this picture of idolatry, we think these people are out worshiping some horrible, awful monster. And like, well, idolatry is just blatant. Idolatry is valuing anything more than God, even lots of good things. So money is an, is an amoral thing. Like, it's not wrong to have money. You kind of need it to operate in our culture today. It's currency. It's how we get things done. There's nothing wrong with having money. Money is, is non-moral. It's amoral. It's not a good or bad thing. But when money becomes valued more than God, when you begin to have your uh, affections impacted more by your bank account than by your creator God, what you have there is you've taken a good thing and have turned it into a God thing which is a bad thing. This is, this is the essence of idolatry. It's not just taking bad things and loving them more than God. It's taking good things and loving good things even more than God can become idolatry. Family is a good thing. To love your family, to provide for your family, to take care of them, it's a good thing. Bible, in fact, commands us to do these things. It talks about the structure of the family. But when you take this family, when you take these relationships and you say my happiness is found in them over my, my worth in my creator God, over my value being found in him, you take this good thing and you make it God, that's a bad thing. That is idolatry. So many things we could go on to. Work is not a bad thing. He who does not work, prior, he who does not work, does not eat. Well, you need to work. Work is a fine thing. But when work becomes the thing that gives you value and meaning over against your creator, you've taken a good thing and turned it into a God thing. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. These people were worshiping Baal. They are not worshiping God. And idolatry is also valuing anything more than God. When we make good things into God things, this is a bad thing. It's idolatry. Moving on, star worship. They appear to have some sort of cosmic religion akin to astrology. Your horoscopes kind of come out of this, this idea of following the fates, that these, these things are in control of everything as opposed to the creator God who providentially and sovereignly rules over everything. Sin to trust in these horoscopes and these astrological things over and against a creator God who made the universe, who set it into order. 
We don't, if we can talk more about that later if you want to. But interestingly, they go on, these people, in verse 3, they swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. They are syncretists, okay? That's a big fancy word. It just means they've synchronized their religions. And they've said, I like what Jesus has to offer. Not Jesus then, but we say this today. It's akin to this. I like what Jesus has to say about this issue. Let me have a little Jesus. I kind of like what uh, Buddhism says about this. Let me have a little Buddhism. I think the New Age philosophy about uh, the secret and whatever. I want a little of this. And we kind of just gather all we want in here. And we make kind of our own religion. We swear by the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. This is, this is syncretism. Kind of pick your own religion kind of thing. Like those choose your own adventure books. It's like choose your own religion kind of book. Uh, if you want, uh, turn to page whatever. If you want this, turn to page whatever. If you want this. And we, we synchronize our religion and begin to worship it instead of the true God as the only God. As he has revealed himself to be. And God hates it. It is sin. We've taken, you know what, I like my culture's views on materialism and self-service. I'm going to add that. This is syncretism. You synced together the parts that you like. Well, fine when you do that. But when you do that, what you have is a God in your own image. You've just created your own God in your own image according to your own desires. You do not have the true God. Sin. God hates sin and he will punish sinners. Okay? So deniers, we could go on. Culture consumed. These people, I, this is why I found myself really kind of thinking on, they array themselves in foreign attire. It was not dressing as God had designed for them to dress. And it's possibly the priestly robes. They, get, they dressed as the, the pagan priestly um, attire. But they were, it was not as God had desired for them to dress. But if you think on that a little bit, God has designed a certain way for a Christian, for us to live in a way that honors God. And how many of us wear foreign attire, wear the attire of the culture around us, as opposed to the attire, the clothing, the life that God has designed and designated and commanded for us to have? How much of our day is designed by how the culture around us does life? How much of our life is, is designed around about how our culture does life? How convinced are we that our doings are fine and good because our culture around us does it, and so therefore we take on their attire and wear our culture's clothing, a foreign attire, as opposed to the attire that God has for us? How is, how is your sexual ethic influenced by the culture instead of by God's word? Are you dressed in foreign attire? Is your culture's Uh, idea of how to spend your money is it influenced more by your culture or by god's word are you dressed by foreign attire or are you dressed in the robes that god has commanded for us to dress in you understand with the foreign attire you can really go a long ways with this and looking at your own life how influenced am i by foreign attire what my culture thinks is okay and less upon what god has said is okay complacency they're superstitious complacency we could go on a long time but we don't have the time for it this morning about complacency just kind of like yeah god won't do good god won't do ill i'm going to do what i want and just kind of let the cards fall where they may a large part of our culture a large part of our religious culture even is very complacent agnostic and trusting in their prosperity if there's anything that condemns our american religion is a trusting in our prosperity 
they think they're, they're sold or their gold, silver, sold? Silver or gold will save them. This is what he say here. That neither shall their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of God. Flying through a ton of things there. To make how many of these qualities give, that give rise to the wrath of God in chapter 1 live on in all of us at one level or another. God is putting us in the crosshairs of his condemnation in this book of Zephaniah. How many of these things call our number? It's what makes the Bible, it's what makes the Bible such an interesting book. Is it, gets, it just gets us. It knows what we're like. It knows what we're up to. It knows what's going on. How many of these things put you in God's cross, the crosshairs of God's wrath? Do you think you will escape? I'm going to push on you a little bit. Okay? Do you think you will escape? God, is, God hates sin, and he will punish sinners. Do you think God will, nah, he won't do good or ill? He certainly will. God hates sin, and he will punish it. So then, in closing, where does this leave us? I hope you feel heavy. I mean, if you feel like, gosh, Darren's really getting us down, it's because I am. The book of Zephaniah does. It's condemning of sin. And so then, where does that leave us? If you know me, we won't end there. Zephaniah goes on. We'll get to it in a few more weeks. But for starters, all of mankind sits justly under the wrath of God. If God hates sin, he hates our sin. If God hates sin, he hates your sin. If God punishes sinner, sinners, punishment is headed our way. We all sit in the crosshairs of God's wrath as those who commit sin and are sinners. Punishment, uh, what can be done then to avoid this punishment? Nothing. What can you do to avoid this punishment? Nothing. Let me push a little harder. Do you hear me? What can you do to avoid this crosshairs of God wrath, God's wrath? Nothing. God is just. Punishment cannot be avoided. Punishment cannot just be put to the side. Got to be an unjust judge. If he just said, you know what? I don't care that murder and sin, everything abounds. It's okay. Don't worry about it. We would throw every judge off of their bench if they started just letting wrongdoers go. And God is more righteous than any judge. He cannot just wipe judgment away. None of us would call a judge just if he did not punish wrongdoers. No, punishment cannot be avoided. We won't end there. That'd be nice. We won't end there. This is where the gospel hits home. This is why we need to understand and sit under the, the weight of the wrath of God. At the bottom of this pit of despair, who can escape God's judgment? Who, if, if the God of the universe hates sin and punishes sinners, who am, how are we to escape this? What in the world are we going to do? At the bottom of this pit of despair is where we finally can get eyes to see the supreme value of the gospel. If we don't let ourselves be driven down like Zephaniah nails us to the wall, we don't have eyes to rejoice in the gospel. We've got to embrace both of these realities. Yes, God hates sin and he punishes sinners, which is what makes the gospel such good news. From this depth, we can finally see the amazing grace of God given to us in our Savior. Turn last scripture, 1 John chapter 1. I don't think 1 John chapter 3, for 4, excuse me. 1 John chapter 4, 
verse 10. Make way at the back of your Bible. The other end, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a fancy word that just means the wrath-appeasing sacrifice. God loved us so much that He sent His Son to take our punishment upon Himself. The wrath that is deserving of us, that has us in God's crosshairs, is put upon Himself. God hates sin. He will punish it. And that is what we see at the cross. It's what the cross is all about. God hates sin. He will punish it. We see God the Son taking the punishment due to each one of us. We're taking the punishment due to the world upon Himself so that all who look to Him in repentance and faith would be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, having their just punishment lifted and promised everlasting life in the fullness of His joy forever. Punishment cannot be avoided. It is coming. But God in His mercy has laid punishment upon a substitute, has laid your deserved punishment upon another, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is what the cross is about. Is your punishment stored up for you? Have you trusted in Christ as your punishment absorber? This is what rejoicing in the gospel is. Have you trust by faith trusted in Christ as your substitute? There is abundant mercy at the foot of the cross. We do not want to foolishly turn away from this grace and charge into the punishment God has stored up for those who sin against him. He will punish sinners. Is your punishment laid upon Christ? Zephaniah is such an important book because it shows us the seriousness of our sinful condition before a holy God. Without seeing that, the gospel isn't much of a rescue, just more of a recognition by God of what we already assume is our goodness. But the message of Scripture is simultaneously far worse than that and far better. Far worse than that and far better. God will punish sinners and that we all are. God hates sin and we all sin. But God has taken that upon Himself in the person of Christ, laid our sins upon His Son so that by the grand move of His grace, the ones deserving of punishment could be given the life that the one deserving of life received and who received our punishment in our place. This is the glory of the Gospel. Zephaniah laying us low under the wrath of God, what we deserve, yet seeing in the Gospel that wrath we deserve is laid upon another for our rescue, for our reconciliation, for our forgiveness of sins, for our redemption. Let's pray. God, such heaviness that there is weightiness. This is what glory is, God. We, when you talk about your glory, it means weightiness. There's a weightiness to you, God, and we want to sit under the weightiness of who you are. You are not a God to be trifled with. You are grand, glorious, holy, righteous. And God, we want to sit under the weight of that, knowing that you're a God who hates sin and punishes punishes sinners, so that when we look to Christ, our joy is exuberant over being able to be relieved, uncovered, 
covered up in Christ, but, but taken away from this wrath through the work of our Savior on the cross. God, give us eyes to see it and hearts that rejoice in it. In Christ's name, amen.